Our second reading this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 to 4 and 8 to 11. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring of the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with, with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness to, sp- to praise and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. You would please join me in prayer. Lord God, we give you thanks and we give you praise for this day. Lord, thank you for calling us out of our beds and into the gathered worship with your bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord God, thank you for our worship so far this morning through song and through liturgy, through confession of sins, Lord, through hearing your word proclaimed and, and discussed and taught. Lord, we give you praise and thanks, Father, for that. Lord, we thank you for the worship that we will continue to experience this morning, Lord, through our sermon time, Lord, through Eucharist and through more praise. And so, Lord, as we open your word now to, to discuss, Lord, and to think upon your word, we pray, Father, that you would bless it. Lord, that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to believe and to hear and to understand what you have inspired by your Spirit. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, as Scott and Sierra just wonderfully illustrated uh, by the lighting of, of our candle this morning, our theme for today in Advent is joy. Now, I mentioned this on the first Sunday of Advent a couple of weeks ago. And, and Scott just reminded us as well that, that our primary theme, the primary theme of Advent every year is the theme of waiting. As we come to Advent every year, we are constantly reminded that we are a people that live between the advents of Christ, between the arrivals of Christ. Advent reminds us that we are a people who wait on the return of Christ. And over the last two weeks, through the candle lightings and through our readings of both Old Testament and New Testament, we have been encouraged to wait in hope or in anticipation of 
the second advent of Christ. And we've also been encouraged to wait in faith in the Christ who has come, in the Christ who, as we read last week in Isaiah chapter 40, who has ended our warfare, the Christ who has pardoned our iniquities, and the Christ who has poured out a double portion of grace upon us from Yahweh's hands. Our prophecy this morning from Isaiah 61 continues to build upon this theme of waiting. But now it reminds us that even in our waiting upon Christ to return, we are able to wait in a spirit of joy. And we are able to rest in the joy that is found in Christ alone. There's two divisions in this text that are in our bulletins this morning uh, that aid us, actually in this entire chapter. Uh, there's two divisions of Isaiah 61 that aid us in our celebrating the joy of Christ in Advent. The first division takes up the majority of the text, verses 1 through 9. And it proclaims to us the work of Yahweh through Christ, the work in which we can joyfully rest. The second portion is simply a hymn of praise offered by Isaiah. This takes up verses 10 through 12, or 10 and 11, pardon me. This is a praise offered by Isaiah, but it is easily a hymn of joy that belongs to the church. So I just want to consider this morning these two divisions and then joyfully come to the table and make thanks for what Christ has done by partaking of the bread and the cup. So first, let's consider the work of Yahweh through Christ, this work that we can take our joyful rest in Christ. We read again in these first three verses. Isaiah writes, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now there's a lot happening in those three verses. But there's really two things of primary importance that these three verses pull out for us that are important for our consideration of joy this morning, and that is the identity of the anointed one, and then this interesting connection to the year of Jubilee. So I want to look at those two in this first division. So for those who have not regularly been able to be among us at Christ Community Church, either for worship or Bible study, uh, and for those that were just here this morning in Sunday school, you've already picked up on this, but we have been making our way through Isaiah in Sunday school this year. Uh, uh, Walton and, and, Craig, and Connor, excuse me, not Craig, all the C names, Walter and Connor, have been tag-teaming this study. Uh, all of those are recorded online. You're more than welcome to go listen to them. They're wonderful. But we have been going through this entire book as a congregation this year. Uh, obviously, we're not done. We were in 52 today, I think, so we're about to hit, we just hit 53, so we've still got a few more weeks. But this has been discussed many times over the course of our Bible study there in Sunday school, but one constant question in Isaiah is the identification of the servant, or the anointed one, which simply is a word that means Messiah. So you read anointed one here in Isaiah 61, you can change that to Messiah. But we've also discussed this year, particularly on our Wednesday night studies, that there are multiple layers to interpreting scripture. I make the really bad joke about Shrek and about how ogres are like onions, scripture is like an onion, right? So the younger folks in this room 
can at least giggle at this, right? Uh, although that movie came out, I think, when my wife and I were in high school, so that dates us a little. But all that to say, it was still a fun movie, and it's still, it's still a fun movie today. But Scripture is like an onion. It is many-layered. Right? There are two layers in particular that we have looked at quite consistently, and that one is primary really here at Christ Community Church. So one layer is the historical layer. Right? This is the historical method of interpreting Scripture, which helps us to grapple with the context in which a biblical text is written. But there's also the Christological method, which helps us to see how all of Scripture points us to the person and work of the Lord Jesus. So the key factor to keep in mind as we start to approach this text of Isaiah 61, and as we try to unpack the identity of the anointed one, is that as you look here in the first verse, the power is that the work of the anointed one has been excuse me, is that God, it is God who directs the anointed one through the power of the Holy Spirit or by anointing him in the Holy Spirit. So this means that the work of the anointed one has been assigned to him by God with the power of the Spirit of God that will guarantee that the anointed one will successfully complete all of the work that God has assigned to him to complete. And so we see here at the outset of Isaiah 61 that the work of the anointed one, empowered through the spirit of Yahweh, is to preach good news. That's his primary work. Again, we read it here. The spirit of Adonai Yahweh, this is how this reads in our text. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news. That's why the anointed one has been anointed. Now, historically and contextually, to use that first layer, this anointed one actually ends up being multiple individuals over the course of the book of Isaiah, three of whom will not even show up until the end of the Babylonian exile. Here in Isaiah 61, verse 1, historically, this anointed one is later fulfilled not by a Hebrew, but by multiple Gentiles. Particularly, Cyrus the Great, Darius, and Artaxerxes, all three of whom are emperors or kings of the Persian Empire. Now, historically, the Persians are known for quite a few things, but primarily, at least for our context this morning, for conquering the Babylonian Empire. You have Babylon, then you have Persia. And these three kings of Persia all had a specific hand to play in the return of the Jewish exiles from their captivity. Some of the details of these events are chronicled in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And all of this takes place after Isaiah. That's the historical and contextual context to Isaiah. But Christologically, the anointed one is fulfilled ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself tells us as much in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21, when upon returning to his home village of Nazareth, he reads this passage from the prophet Isaiah. And then as soon as he reads it, he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and then proclaims to those standing in front of him, he would have been seated. He said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Ambrose of Milan, one of the church fathers, who was, uh, his gospel presentation eventually leads Augustine to believe in Christ, Writing in the 4th century, Ambrose of Milan writes this. He says, rightly does Jesus say that the spirit of Yahweh is upon me. 
because Jesus was speaking then as the Son of Man. And as the Son of Man, Jesus was anointed and sent to preach the gospel, to do the work assigned to him from Isaiah 61. But here's where it gets fun. Because Luke's gospel is not the only evidence that this passage is speaking of the Lord Jesus. So Luke might record Jesus quoting this passage directly, but its contents, particularly these first three verses, are located in another gospel, but just with a bit more subtlety. And they're located in the Sermon on the Mount. And so had we not just spent the better part of six months trekking our way through Matthew's gospel, I might have missed this connection. So thank God for the lectionary and the fact that he was like, you know, it's been, it's been six months in Matthew, right? So, so as, as we noted many times over the course of ordinary season this past year, there is a parallel between Matthew's gospel and the book of Isaiah. And it's hard to miss once you start paying attention to it. And the connection in Isaiah 61, 1-3 is found in the Beatitudes there in Matthew 5, verses 1-12. to so, if you would like, you're welcome to, to put a thumb in Matthew 5, or flip to Matthew 5 if you're using some kind of device, or just listen, because I'm going to read them as we go through this. And so as we begin here in Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, you can see that the audience of this good news is identified with five characteristics. And so as we make our way through here, I just want to identify these five characteristics. And they all have a connecting beatitude. And these five characteristics start here as this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. If you're reading a different translation other than the ESV, a lot of them read poor, but some of them might read afflicted. And if it does, that's okay. This is not a misinterpretation. These two words in Hebrew are very, very similar, and it can mean the same thing. But... There are important differences in their use and their definitions. And both have a corresponding beatitude. So if translated as afflicted, not as poor, first let's, let's deal with afflicted. If translated as afflicted, this term can mean those who are afflicted by others, those who are oppressed, those who are persecuted. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed afflicted throughout the world and has been afflicted throughout church history or throughout all of history. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 10 that we will be hated because we bear his name. But in the eighth beatitude, he tells us that those who are afflicted are blessed. He says, starting in verse 10 of Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But if this word is instead translated as poor, like we have here in the ESV, then this can mean something far different. More akin to something like meekness or those who are humble. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 5, Jesus proclaims that those who are poor will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But also those who are meek, those who are humble, will inherit the earth. I thought this was kind of interesting. 
in Matthew chapter, uh, not excuse me, Matthew, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 3, we read the end of that chapter this morning in Sunday school, but the beginning of that chapter we read that the dwelling place of God is with man. In that chapter we see the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. We see the earth, the old earth passing away and the new earth coming into play. God's goal is to renew all of creation as much as it is to renew mankind. Meaning that in this one characteristic, in Isaiah 61 with their two corresponding beatitudes, the church, we are told, that we have a complete inheritance of both heaven and earth. Or we have the inheritance of a complete redeemed kingdom found in the person and work of the anointed one. This is cause for great joy while we wait for the return of our Lord Jesus. That's just the first characteristic. Let's look at the next one. The next one, the message of the anointed one, the good news of the anointed one, is directed towards the brokenhearted. So he has sent me, he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. This sounds an awful lot like Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 to me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In the first advent, the good news of Christ is not only that we have had our iniquities pardoned and our sins doubly forgiven, but we have seen the fullness of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Scott did a great job of drawing our attention to 1 John this morning when he brought this up, but in John's gospel, he tells us this. Again, the word became flesh and it dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ binds our broken hearts up in the fact that we see him and his glory in the incarnation. Third, the gospel proclaimed by this anointed one is liberty to those who are captive. Now, historically and contextually, this is a clear proclamation of the return of those who are exiled to Babylon. We see this similarly with verse 4, where he says, They shall build up the ancient ruins, and they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. This is a prophecy of the return and the rebuilding of the land. But while captives lead us to rightly envision prisoners of war or exiles, Christologically, this characteristic reminds us of what we saw in Isaiah 40, verse 2, last week, where through the work of Christ, our warfare with Yahweh has ended. In Christ, we are no longer estranged from Yahweh, but we are now simply at peace in him. Blessed are the peacemakers, says Jesus in Matthew 5, 9, for they shall be called sons of God. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 5 that through Christ we have peace with God. Fourth, the anointed one is sent to proclaim or to open the prison for those who are bound. So here we can easily envision someone that might be a prisoner of the state. So they would be in prison or in jail or even enslaved. Related to those who are afflicted, bound, these are bound under their own sin and now have been completely set free in Christ. We read in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be set free. And finally, Isaiah writes here in verses 2 and 3 that the message of the anointed one is directed towards those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 4, for they shall be comforted. Or as we saw in Isaiah 40, verse 1 last week, 
They shall be comforted, comforted my people, says the Lord God. But each of these five characteristics tell us of how the anointed one will transform God's people and their circumstances. And we can see this very specifically in the language of verses 2 and 3, which is very reminiscent of Leviticus 25. And in Leviticus 25, we have the description of the year of Jubilee. This is the year where captives are freed. If you were enslaved to someone in Israel in the year of Jubilee, you were set free. The, the land is allowed to lie fallow, to rest. Property is restored to those who had to sell it for whatever reason. The poor are cared for completely. They are redeemed. This is a year where people were fully and completely set free. We read this in the next two verses. He has sent me to proclaim good news and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Based upon his use of these characteristics here in verses in verse one and comparing them with verse five, or excuse me, Matthew five, and then Jesus' preaching the good news and his fulfilling this prophecy in himself, we are shown that Christ is the final jubilee of Yahweh. Where the year of God's favor has been fulfilled in the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you'll notice here that the anointed one proclaims that with his arrival, he brings both a year of favor and a day of vengeance. And both of these messages are part of the tender work of comforting God's people who mourn. Christ is our favor from Yahweh, but it is also Christ who bore the wrath of the vengeance of God upon the cross in his first advent. Paul proclaims to us in Romans 3 that God put Christ forward Instead of us, he put Christ forward as a propitiation, as a wrath-bearing sacrifice to be received by faith. When Christ arrives to bring Yahweh's favor and Yahweh's vengeance, those who mourn are comforted. Again, we read last week in Isaiah chapter 40, he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is the year and the day of the Lord. And the result of this comfort is jubilee. It's, it's the transformation of the people of God, particularly in three distinct ways, and we see it through the rest of this first half of this text. First, verse 3 tells us that God's people will receive glory, that they will then use to glorify him. Again, we read this. He says, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. The Septuagint is better here, in my opinion. Especially better than our job and our attempts of trying to make sense of the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text here. Because this phrase, beautiful headdress, while it might mean the same thing. It, it's not really that clear. We saw the same phrase in Isaiah 52 this morning. In the Septuagint, this phrase, beautiful headdress, is translated instead as 
to give them glory. So again, the meaning might be the same, but the clarity is helpful. Because in Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that we are partakers in the glory of Christ as we share in the sufferings of Christ. And as we continue to read in this verse here, the glory, as, as the glory of Christ given to us, putting us on, or putting, put, put on us by God, it results in God giving us a new name that reflects our new position in the kingdom of heaven. This is just like when God renamed Abram to Abraham, or Jacob to Israel, or Simon to Peter. In Christ, our position and our glory are changed by a new name. He says this, that they may be called oaks of righteousness and the planting of the Lord so that he might be glorified. And as newly named oaks of righteousness, God's people will be well-rooted, he tells us here. We will spread out far and wide and have a taproot that is deeply planted into the soil of Christ. Yahweh gives us glory in Christ so that our glory will reflect his glory and so that he will be glorified around the world. This work of God for us in Christ is cause for great joy. Second, in Christ we see that God makes an everlasting and eternal covenant with his people. He says this in verse 8. He says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. In Jeremiah 32, verse 40, Yahweh says this. He says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. And I will not turn away from doing good for them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn from me. And then as we read in Ezekiel 36 this morning in Sunday school as well, Yahweh says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Here in Isaiah 61 verse 8, this displays for us the character of God and his love for us. It is he who, who accomplishes this work in us through the anointed one. And then third here in verse 9, we read that as the people of Christ, we are known as blessed by Yahweh. He says this, he says, their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. This verse describes for us the implications of how an everlasting covenant with the Lord will, in, will eternally impact our lives. But most importantly, God's presence will dwell with those whom he has made a covenant with. And he will dwell with us so much so that the unbelieving nations, nations around us will be able to perceive this. Again, he says this, they will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. And all who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. And many nations will respond and they have responded with persecution and affliction and oppression. But as we've already seen in this chapter, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has come to proclaim comfort to the people of God, even in the midst of her affliction and her oppression and her persecution. Again, this is cause for great joy as we prepare to celebrate the first advent of Christ while we eagerly anticipate the second. 
But all of this leaves us as God's people to proclaim with Isaiah out of these last two verses a joyful hymn of praise. And so with all of this, we can then also sing with Isaiah, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord and my soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself as a priest with a beautiful headdress or decks himself like a priest with glory. And as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the, as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown, into, sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is the song of the redeemed as we rejoice in our salvation. And this joy here is full and it's overflowing. And this joyful praise is heightened with this wedding imagery. And so we can see here that that our joy is not because of the wedding clothes that we receive, but rather because of the one who gives them to us. Our bridegroom has decked himself out with glory and adorned us with jewels. In Christ, Yahweh has clothed us with garments of salvation. He has given us Christ as himself as a righteous garment, which is not a filthy garment, but a holy garment. And upon the second advent of Christ, we will be presented to him as a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle or blemish, says Paul in Ephesians 5. This hymn of praise proclaims the totality of our salvation found in the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus. And this totality is acknowledged by the nations. And not just acknowledged by the nations like we read in verse 9, but also this totality of our salvation will even sprout up among the nations, we see here in verse 11. Meaning that we, as the bride of Christ, take this joyful salvation with us as we live and move among the nations. The Venerable Bede, one of the church fathers of the 7th century, states this. He says that the gospel is spread through the scattering of the church. Our psalm this morning, we sang... And it made me think of this when we were singing it this morning. It says, those who sow their seed in tears will reap abundant joy. This is what this verse is talking about. This is what Bede is referring to. The gospel is spread through the scattering of the church. The church was first scattered because of a martyrdom. It was scattered in mourning, but is brought back in joy. The church has been scattered around the world now, displaced because war and whatever else, and it is going out in mourning. But the seed is spreading. Bede writes this, he says, instead of the dispersed, the Greek text says here, the disseminated. That is, the church has scattered like a seed. In Matthew chapter 13, which we read this past summer, Jesus says this. Matthew writes, and he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. And other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. But since they had no depth of soil, when the sun rose, they were scorched, and they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell along the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. But other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And what was sown along the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. And he indeed bears fruit. And, and yields one in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and another thirty. 
So now as we prepare to come to the table and make joyful thanks for the work of Christ in his death and in his resurrection, be encouraged this morning. Because God has clothed us in the righteous garments of Christ. He has covered us in the robes of Christ. And he has adorned us as a bride with his glory so that, as his beloved bride, we will glorify him. So in this third week of Advent, wait for Christ in hope and in faith. But also wait for him in joy. And proclaim the joyful message of our complete and total salvation that is found in Christ alone.